Well, guys, y'all may have a seat, and uh, I want to continue looking at uh, what the Bible has to say about the life of Paul, not because Paul's the hero of this story, God's the hero of the story, but when you follow God's work through a person's life, you see how if God can work through them, God can also work through you, and it brings us encouragement, it brings us strength. It also gives us direction because we learn some things through these people's lives that help us to know how that we can interact with God and how that God can, can lead and direct uh, our lives. Last week when we left off, we saw that Paul and Barnabas were being run out of the city of Antioch, and um, they were being chased out of town. Uh, they stopped at the edge of town and shook the dust off their feet, and we talked about how that, that Jews would do that when they had gone into Gentile country. And they came back across the border. They would stop and shake off the dust of the Gentiles, basically saying, we want to have nothing to do with you people. Um, Paul, on the way out of Antioch, stops and makes that same statement back to the Jews. I have presented the gospel to you. You have thrust it aside. You consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life. I shake the dust from my feet. I say that, that I want nothing to do with, with that mindset, nothing to do with folks who want to reject Jesus. And so they leave and they head out... Uh, uh, from Antioch. It says as they leave that, they, uh, that the believers that were there, that they had led to Jesus, were filled with joy and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. We talked last week that the chances are pretty high that when they were run out of town, they weren't just shoved outside of town, but they were beaten pretty bad before. Uh, we talked about the Roman rods, those birch rods that the Roman soldiers would use to beat people with, and they think that that took place as they were leaving uh, Antioch. And so if that's the case, then the scholars tend to think that when these guys were shoved to the outskirts of town, that they probably found a believer's home and laid up for a few days, nursing their wounds, trying to get their strength back. These were not just a, a mama spanking with a little switch. This is some massive stuff that would be equivalent to them being beaten by the Jews with whips. So their backs are bloody. They're, they're beat up pretty bad. They probably laid up for a few days on the outskirts of town, maybe in the home of a believer, kind of nursing their wounds and getting their strength back. Um, Another thing that happens here that the Bible doesn't explicitly say, but we pick up from a passage in Timothy, is that we think it's about this time that Paul and Barnabas meet young Timothy. Um, scholars tend to think that Timothy must have been in the city of Antioch, maybe with his mother and his grandmother. Um, there was a lot of trade that went on in those times, and this was a trade route that people would travel. And so they think that probably Paul... Uh, may have met uh, Timothy. Maybe it was that there was a caravan that was going to travel from Antioch on up into this next town called Iconium, and that uh, Timothy and his mother and his grandmother would have been a part of that caravan that, that traveled. And part of the reason that we, we deduct that is that these guys, first of all, we know that Timothy was from the city of Lystra, which is a town that Paul's going to visit here very soon. Uh, they were converts to Christianity, may have come to know Christ as part of this Antioch crowd, the, the crowd that gathered and learned about Jesus. Uh, we know that Timothy's dad was a Greek. His mother was now a believer. But, but it's interesting when Paul talks about Timothy and his mom and his grandmother, um, he talks about his grandmother coming to faith first, faith first, then his mom, and then young Timothy. Uh, we know that Timothy was led to Christ by Paul because Paul talks, he talks about him as, a, as my son in the faith. And so look with me, uh, and we'll have this on the screen, but in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, this is why we think that they were with him in Antioch, and they made this trip back up to Iconium. Paul is writing to Timothy years later. That's one of Paul's last letters that he writes. But he's, re he's reminiscing back about his encounters and his travels with Timothy. And he says this in 2 Timothy 3.10. 
He says, you, Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. So if Timothy has followed these, these persecutions, he's been an eyewitness to these persecutions in Antioch, and then up here in Iconium where he's fixing to go, and then across into Lystra, Timothy's hometown, Timothy would have had to have been with Paul during these three city stops that he's about to make. And so um, he's, he's probably linking up with them. They're, they're not yet best buddies. They're not yet traveling together. They're not yet those companions that will, will, will do missionary work together. But here's young Timothy. Maybe he's a brand-new convert. Maybe his parents and mom and his grandmother as brand-new converts in Christ. But, but they believe that this trip that they're going to make uh, up to, uh, to Iconium was a trip that, um, that would have introduced Timothy to Paul. Maybe Timothy is a young child. They're thinking he's about 17, 18 years old when this encounter first took place. Timothy had to be amazed at what Paul and Barnabas were doing, uh, at the boldness of that, of the, the, the response of the Holy Spirit, and, and the way for them to, uh, to do that. And so Timothy is at least intrigued, and we think he traveled with them along that way. Uh, they would have taken this road called the Augustan Way up into uh, to this area. So let's look real quick at the map if we can get to that. Um, and I'm going to show you all kind of where they, where they were and where they, they, they've been. Uh, they're here in Antioch is where Paul's chased out of town. They're going to travel 80 miles across to Iconium, which is this little town right here. It was uh, pretty good roads thanks to the Pax Romana. The, 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 the roads were built well. There was a lot of travel, a lot of trade that took place in there. And so we're going to see a, a combination over the next couple of weeks of, of a couple of different towns. They're going to be here in Antioch. They're going to run down to Iconium. Some stuff's going to happen there. They're going to flee down to Lystra. Lystra's where Paul's going to get stoned. And then they're going to go over here to Derby, which is another 40 miles away. So you've got 80 miles to Iconium. You've got about 18 to 20 miles down to Lystra. And then you've got another 40 miles over to Derby. So these guys are traveling uh, some distance. This, this trip now from Antioch down to Iconium was about a seven- to eight-day trip on foot. And so these guys would have laid up a few days, healed a little bit. Then they would have taken this trip where uh, they're going to travel down to, uh, to, the, uh, to Iconium. After about seven days of travel, the road's going to fork. And, and what would happen on this road, um, and it's not on this map because it's not so blown up, but, but when you get into Iconium, if you continued to travel straight, you would have headed on straight down to Derby. There's actually another road there. Uh, or, no, I'm sorry. When you get about seven days in here, the road forked, and it went down to Lystra or it went across to Iconium. They think that probably uh, Timothy's mom and grandmother would have headed on down to Lystra, which was their hometown, but that Timothy stuck around and went into Iconium and saw what Paul and Timothy were doing there. So right about where that road makes that little hump is a fork in the road, and, uh, and maybe the, the parent and, and the child split up, and Timothy went with them. So we're told that when they get into Iconium, one of the first things that they do is they head straight for the Jewish synagogue. Do you remember why they always went to the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, first? Anybody remember that? Why would they go to the synagogue first and not just take the gospel straight to the Gentiles? Okay, they were teachers. They had a spot in the synagogue. If they went to the Gentiles first, the Jews would reject the message completely. Okay, and say, this is something for the Gentiles, and, and if they're going to feed it to the dogs, we're not eating the dogs' leftovers, Okay. So he would always go to the Jews first, make his appeal to the Jews. When the Jews rejected it, which they did a time and time and time again, he would say to the Jews, all right, you don't want the gospel. I brought it to you first. You don't want it. Now we're going to take it to the Gentiles. 
If you reverse that, the Jews never would have listened to start with. And so, his, his, again, his passion and his hope is to get the gospel to the Jews. Uh, he is the, 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 the apostle to the Gentiles, though, and so he knows, pretty much been warned, the Jews aren't going to embrace it, but offer it to him anyway, and then when they reject it, we'll go on to the Gentiles. And so he's got this passion for the Jews. He knows that it's not going to, uh, to be received, but he takes it to the Jews first, and then he goes to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 14, our main passage here, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 today. So last week we looked at like 87 verses. Today it's going to be seven verses, okay? Uh, they arrive in, in Iconium. They enter together, Barnabas and Paul, into the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now, if you're a pastor like me, and you say, oh, they spoke in such a way that large numbers believe, you go, What's their secret? What's their message? What was their methodology? Do they have, you know, screens with pictures? Did, you know, what did they do that was so fantastic that the crowd had to respond? And we want to look at the man and say, what did this man do that made the crowds respond? But when we look at it a little more biblical, we realize this. Not one person has ever been saved by a preacher. Now, preachers have shared the gospel, and the gospel has brought conviction, and the Spirit of God's drawn people, but preachers don't save anybody. And so we tend to read these things, and we, we want to idolize sometimes Paul and, and Barnabas and go, man, what was it that they did? But, but when it says they spoke in such a way, they're not referring to, to something fantastic that Paul and Barnabas did, not that they were incredible speakers, but they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were led by the Spirit of God. They were focused upon Jesus. That was the secret of what they were doing. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit to share this gospel of grace. And the Spirit of God was moving in such a way that he was capturing the hearts of the people and bringing them. So please don't, don't look at Paul and Barnabas and go, man, if I could speak like them and if I could be like them, then I would just, man, I'd be a preacher too. That's not what's happening in this story. The, the hero of the story, again, is not Paul and it's not Barnabas, but it's Jesus and it's what he's doing. And and, and, and Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, look at this. It's, look what he says. He says, when I came to you, okay, so Paul's coming to the Corinthian church. He says this. He says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. In other words, there was nothing impressive about the way that I did this. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was committed to staying focused upon the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was with you in, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible or persuasive words of wisdom, but my, my speech and my message was in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Think about this. When Paul showed up, in Iconium, and he and Barnabas entered that synagogue, and they began to speak, and they spoke in such a way. What's he saying? They spoke in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they spoke in a way that the Spirit of God was leading them, and the Spirit of God was working in their midst. It, it had nothing to do with these persuasive words, or these lofty speeches, or this great memorized spill that, that the Apostle Paul would have. It's got everything to do with the, the power of God's Spirit, who's at work in them. And so Paul reaffirms that again and again throughout his other writings. And he says there was a reason that he didn't go in there with lofty words, a reason he didn't go in there with these fancy speeches, the reason he went in there just knowing Jesus and, and Christ crucified was for this. Verse 5, 
so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, we're going to come back to this a little bit later on in this message, but I want you to remember Paul's purpose was to connect people to Jesus, not to connect people to Paul. His purpose was not that they would become dependent upon him, but they would learn to be dependent upon Jesus. Guys, listen, there's a real, real temptation in today's world and somewhat of a a pressure sometimes for pastors to connect people to themselves to create a following, to, to draw a crowd that wherever this preacher goes, people just show up because they, they know his name and they know how famous he is and they, and they know how eloquent he is. Paul says, that wasn't my aim. My aim was not to connect people to me. My aim was to connect people to God because I wanted their faith to rest not in men, but in God. And if we ever lose sight of that, if we ever lose sight of the fact that we're not called to connect people to ourselves. Yes, listen, we're not even called really to connect people just to, to a church family. We are called ultimately to connect people to Jesus Christ. And that's what made Paul's speech so powerful. That's what made what, what he did so good was that he wanted to be invisible. And he just wanted people to see Jesus and to see the gospel and to recognize the power of God's spirit as he spoke. And so his message was always centered on Jesus. It was always empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it always sought to connect people to Jesus, not to Paul and to Barnabas. The results were that a great number of people, Jews and Greeks, believed their message. So they're finally starting to see some great results. Paul's being in and out of town after town. He gets there and he barely unpacks a suitcase. And it seems like he gets run out of town again. So here he is in a town and it seems like everybody's beginning to respond. The gospel is making headway in this melting pot called Iconium where you had every kind of thought, every kind of religion, every kind of sin you can imagine. The gospel's taking root and it's beginning to spread. They're finally seeing some results. But not everyone in town was going to be happy about the results. Back in Acts chapter 14, verse 2, it says, But the unbelieving Jews, those in the synagogue that refused to believe their message, those in the synagogue that that refused to to let go of the legalism and, 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 and embrace this grace thing that God has brought to them, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, and they poisoned their minds against the brothers. You can write it down, guys. Every single time that God does something great, Satan is going to show up and oppose it. Every time. Every time God starts to do a great work in your life, Satan's going to show up with temptations. He's going to show up with pressure, with persecution. He's going to do something to get you sidetracked. Every single time God begins to stir your heart and move you forward, Satan's going to throw up a roadblock in the way to get you discouraged and to get you to quit and get you to walk away. Every time. And it's no different for Paul and, and, and for Barnabas. And so Satan never lacks for volunteers to do his work either. Listen, anytime you step up to do something that God's called you to do, Satan's going to find a volunteer to attack or to discourage or to gossip or to spread rumor. He's going to do something to stop what you're trying to do. Just write that down. It's, it's true. And so here we see with Paul and Barnabas that opposition arises to what they're doing. These unbelieving Jews began to stir up. And that, that word stir up, that, it means to raise up against. It's a picture of what happened back there in chapter 13 that we looked at last week where, where um, the, 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 the Jews incited the, the, leading, the, 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 the women of influence and the leading men of the city. They, they incited this riot. They stirred up this persecution. It's the same thing happening now 
to them in, in, in Iconium that just happened to them in Antioch. So they've changed towns, but the story is still the same. It's the Jews stirring up the Gentiles, those who had yet to believe, those who had yet to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And it says they poison their minds. Literally, the word means to embitter. It is to have this hateful disdain. In Ephesians, Paul says, fathers, do not embitter your children. Don't, don't make them so angry. They just don't want to be around. They just, they hate you. Don't do that. That's not the way you parent. But that's what these guys were doing. They were poisoning the minds of the Gentiles. How do you poison somebody's mind? Gossip? Lies? Slander? Insults? You call into question everything that they're doing. It's, it's the same thing that Satan did back in the garden when he, when he came to Eve. Well, God didn't say that, did he? That's the, surely that's not what God meant. Surely he began to poison her mind and to turn her against what God had revealed to her. The same tactics are still being done in, in Iconium that, that happened back in the garden. And so now we've got to look at this and we say, man, the new believers are rejoicing, but the opposition is mounting. How are the apostles going to respond? Do they stay? Do they leave? Do they, do they keep speaking or do they get quiet? What, what, what's the response? What do you do when you're facing opposition? Some of us want to stand for Jesus until the price tag gets a little high. We, we want to stand for Jesus when it's popular, but the minute that the crowd turns, we, we, we want to get quiet and we want to become invisible. And, and we become like a chameleon that just kind of blends in, like a hunter in a deer stand just wanting to go unnoticed, unseen. And sometimes that's the way that we approach Christianity. It's like, hey, as long as I'm around my Christian friends, man, I'm going I'm to talk about Jesus and I'm going to share about Jesus and I'm going I'm to look really good and sound really good. But the minute you put me in a secular environment at work, I, nobody there even knows I'm a believer. How are these guys going to respond? They've, they've, they've been in a town after town now, and every time they go, the opposition arises. They get stoned, they get beat, they get run out of town. What do they do in this case? And they do what you and I might not expect for them to do. Look at the next verse. Verse 3. It says, So they remained. They hunkered down and they stuck with it. And they remained a long time. Now we're not told what, what, what that long time was, but we're just told that these guys didn't run away. That somebody needed to stay and to strengthen the new believers. They've they got all these folks who are, who are turning to Christ. And it's going to say in a minute that the city was divided, which tells us that, that, that this, is, this is not just a, a small little isolated group that have come to know Jesus Christ. This is a large part of the city that have cho chosen now to follow Jesus Christ. And, and, and Paul and Barnabas realized somebody's got to strengthen these guys. Somebody's got to, we've got to give them the gospel quick because we don't know how long we're going to get to stay. But they hunkered down, they remained for a long time. One commentary says their plans were probably to, to winter in Iconium. Remember, you had to travel with the weather. And they were going to stay there through the winter was their plans. But they didn't just stay and blend in. They continued to speak boldly for the Lord. Now, I don't know how you read that word, boldly. I've always read when they're bold, they're in your face and they're screaming and they're yelling. They're just mad evangelists that's just giving everybody what for. And, and, and I'm going to stand up and I'm going to let you know you don't scare me. And, and it's that fight or flight thing, you know, and they're the fighters. They're going to stand and they're going to fight and they're going to be bold. 
I don't think, however, that that's the right way to interpret what Paul was doing. Paul wasn't mad. He wasn't angry. He, he wasn't harsh and hateful. But neither was Paul timid. Paul had a love and a passion for lost people. And that, that, that love and that passion was not, didn't come across as being hateful and ugly. But it came across as being urgent and needed and filled with, with love and filled with compassion, but filled with, with this conviction that, that the gospel was the only thing that was going to set these people free. He was confident in the Lord and confident in God's word and confident that God would protect him. And so they were able to be bold. Instead of pulling back and becoming timid, they were able to stand up and to be bold, just like Paul would tell Timothy later on. Timothy, don't you be, don't you be timid because you're young. Don't you let them intimidate you because you're young and they're old. You, you, you stand up and you speak the truth and you read the word of God and you explain the word of God we, we see in second Timothy chapter 2 again as Paul's writing to Timothy later on instructing him he talks about the attitude that the servant of the Lord has to have and so these are the same attitudes that that Paul's lived out in front of Timothy and now later in his ministry he's reminding Timothy this is what you got to be Timothy because you're going to face some of the same opposition that you saw that I faced second Timothy 2 24 through 26 he says and the lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil do you see paul's attitude coming through in this when it says he's bold it's not harsh and hateful he's being not quarrelsome but kind and patient you need to correct your opponents with gentleness And God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after they've been captured by him to do his will. This is how he set people free, Timothy. Not by screaming at them. Not by holding a a sign up on the street corner that says, Turn or burn. That's not what we're after. It's about constantly sharing the gospel boldly, confidently, that God's going to use the gospel perhaps to lead somebody to repentance, to bring them to their senses and to help them escape the snares of the devil. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, I, Paul, entreat you, I beg you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who I am an humble, who I am humble when I'm face to face with you, but bold when, when I'm away. They were accusing Paul of this. This will give you an idea of Paul's personality. The Corinthian false prophets... This is what they said about Paul. Paul's writing you a strong letter, and Paul's saying some things that are bold, but you know what? When he's here, he's a wimp. When he's face-to-face with you, he, he, he's, he's a wimp. And then he runs away, and he writes you this strong, bold letter telling you what he thinks. And Paul says, that's, that's, that's not... I, I, I'm begging you. Me, the guy that you say is humble when face-to-face, but bold when I'm away, I'm, I'm, I'm begging you to turn to Christ. Later on in that same chapter, verses 8 through 10, he says, even if I boast a little bit too much of our authority, our authority which the Lord gave me to build you up and not to destroy you, I'll not be ashamed. For I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, well, his letters are weighty and strong. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. This fits exactly what Paul said his goal was. I don't want you to build your faith on how well I speak. 
I don't want you to build your faith on how strong I come across. I don't want to strong arm you. I don't want to twist you. I don't want to manipulate you into following Jesus Christ. I want you to follow Jesus because there's no greater power. There's no greater God. There's nobody else that you can put yourself in, in his hands and trust him completely. I don't want you to do it because I'm twisting your arm. I want you to do it because you see Jesus in all of his splendor and you go, there is no greater God that I can follow. So Paul says, listen, when I'm in your presence, I, I come across weak. When, when I'm in your presence, people look at me and go, man, his speech is of no account. That guy can barely even talk. Paul says, I do that on purpose. Because I don't want you to put your faith and your trust in me. I want you to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. So when it says Paul is bold, he, he's not the angry prophet. He is a passionate evangelist, a passionate pastor who wants everybody connected to God. Paul loved those that opposed him. He wanted them to know God. He was not overpowering and ugly. He was not forceful and mean-spirited. But neither would he flinch in the face of opposition. It says he spoke boldly for the Lord, and the Lord bore witness. Look back at verse 3. The Lord bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. What's he saying? That, that, that they spoke boldly for the Lord, and then the Lord is going to bear witness. He's going to verify that what they're saying is true by allowing them to do these signs and these wonders, these miracles in the midst of the people. But verse 4, it says, but the people of the city. Now, here's where we know that there's a large group of people following them. That the people of the city were divided. Have you ever noticed how the gospel tends to divide? If I think, as a pastor, that I can preach the gospel and everybody's just going to jump on board, I've lost my mind. If you think that every person you share Jesus with is going to just fall on their knees and repent and say, Oh my gosh, I've been waiting all my life to hear what you just told me. If you think that's going to be the response of every person you share Jesus with, and you're going to get your feelings hurt the first time you share it with somebody and they reject it, then you've lost your mind. The gospel divides the wheat and the tares. The gospel divides those who are self-sufficient for those who have nothing and need God's grace. The gospel is divisive. And the minute that we try to build a, a church or build a following where everybody's on board and, and we want everybody just to be completely together and we want sinners to be at home and the saved to be at home and we want everybody just to, to hold hands and sing kumbaya, the only way to do that is to throw the gospel out the door. It's the only way to do it. Because the gospel divides. Here these guys are focused on the gospel. Not Paul and his personality, but on the gospel. And the gospel divided the city. It exposes the true nature of our hearts. And so when we preach the gospel, we ought to expect some pushback. We ought to expect some people in the crowd to respond positively and some folks in the crowd to say, you know what, I'm going to attack that and I'm going to attack you and I'm going to shut you down. We ought to expect it to, to be divisive. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. This statement lets us know who was behind the attacks. Now, the Jews, we already read, had been poisoning the minds of the Gentiles, right? But who's in charge of this attack? The Jews. The Jews want them dead, but they don't want their fingerprint on the gun. So they're poisoning the minds, they're gossiping. Oh, my gosh, if I... It, we, oh, that's another soapbox. But guys, 
How much gossip in church is stirred up by one person with the other person as a mouthpiece? You got this one who's just a snake in the grass. And they're stirring everybody else up to be the mouthpiece that attacks. Satan still does the same thing. And, and here he is again doing that here. He, the Jews were against the apostles, but they wanted the, the Gentiles to be the mouthpiece. They wanted the Gentiles to, to be the hammer that came down on these guys. So the Jews were the ringleaders, but they just didn't want to get tagged. They wanted the Gentiles to be their hatchet men. And the Gentiles were just immature and lost enough to do that. Verse 5. It says, when an attempt, literally an assault, this is mob violence. This is not going through the courts. It's not the regular way of doing business. It's not the Jewish prescribed way of doing it. But literally when an attempt, that word means an assault. It's, it's a picture of this mob violence that took place in the city of Ephesus. Later on, we'll read about that in Paul's journeys, where, where they're up there preaching, and all of a sudden there's just this mob violence that comes and tries to attack these guys. The attempt was made by both. Now look at this, they switched the order. The Gentiles and the Jews. It's been the Jews leading the Gentiles. Now it's the Gentiles out front. Why? Because they become the hatchet men. They've been so stirred up and so poisoned by the Jews that they're attacking God's servants. And so now it says the Gentiles and the Jews, with their rulers, their plan, their attempt was to mistreat them, probably to beat them again, and then to stone them. Now we know this was not a when it says, and their rulers, it's not the, the, the Roman rulers because the attack that they've got planned is a Jewish attack. The way that Jews persecuted those that were guilty of blasphemy was to execute them with stoning, and that's their plan here. Romans would beat you to death. The Jews would stone you to death. And so we know this is a Jewish attack, not just a, you know, when I first read that, I thought, oh, okay, we got the Gentiles, we got the Jews, and we got the rulers of the city. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about the rulers of the synagogue. Because the attack that they've got planned, the assault is to stone these guys, which was a Jewish type of execution, usually for blasphemy. But God informs Paul and Barnabas of what's about to take place. Look what it says in verse 6. They learned of it. God's protecting them. He's warning them. He's about to lead them. Look what he's going to do. They learned of it, and they fled. You go, oh, I thought they were bold. They're bold, but they're not stupid. They're bold, but they're wise. They're in step with the Holy Spirit's leading. The Holy Spirit says, let me tell you what's fixing to happen here. And we've got to get you out of here. We're going to move you on to the next place. So God's warning them, and they're listening to God, and they're saying, okay, Lord, there's a time. That you've got to know when to hold them, and you've got to know when to fold them, right? Here we go. You want to sing that song for us? Okay. Thank you. You want me to sing it? No, we better not. They learn of it. They fled. And they went to Lystra. Now, this is Timothy's hometown. So Timothy hooks up with him in Antioch. He goes up to Iconium. And now they're going to slide over to this town called Lystra. It's Timothy's hometown. It's 18 miles away. And then also on to Derby, which is another 40 miles down the road. So let's look at the map real quick again. Let me give you a visual of, of where, we're gonna, where we're taking them, okay? So what's happening here? They've been in, in Antioch. They're going to slide over to Iconium, where they've been today. They're going to drop down now to Lystra, Timothy's hometown. And they're also going to make their way out here to Derby, okay? 
And so this is kind of where they're at. So they've, they've made the 80-mile trip to Iconium. Now there's plans to have them stoned. They're going to flee down to Lystra. We'll see next week what happens in Lystra and then what happens in Derby. And, um, but they're, they're, again, on foot. They're headed out. They're, they're, they're running. But look at verse 7. As they flee, look what happens. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Nothing was going to silence them. Nothing was going to stop them. Once again, God, so the gospel was accepted by some. It was rejected by the others. The opposition had arisen. The, the, it had forced them to leave behind these new believers in Christ. Now, I want to take a minute, and I, I need to take you on a, a process that's going to help you to, to, to frame what we're reading here. Because it's easy to sit down and read through the book of Acts. We've just covered seven verses in, in this story. And we've already gone from Antioch to Iconium to Lystra to Derby in seven verses. Wow, boom, 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 boom. But, but here's something that we really need to, to stop and focus on today. Paul and them are in these towns for very short times. They're leading people to Christ. They're, they're, there's these groups of believers now that are huddling together and, and, and trying to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, just like that, their leaders run out of town. Can, can you imagine with me if we had sent Daniel and Stephanie to Seattle to plant a church? They go up there, and, and all of a sudden, man, this just revival breaks out. There's, there's 300 people that come to know Jesus Christ, and Daniel's standing up every day just preaching his heart out, and all of a sudden, a month later, Daniel and Stephanie have to leave Seattle under the threat of their life. What do you think would happen to that church they just started? Just been there a month. And now the leader, the, 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 the church planter, the pastor, is forced to leave town. And all you've got left are now brand new believers in Christ. What if for you, if you had come to know Jesus Christ, and a month after that you were just separated from, from any kind of spiritual leadership at all, and you are just left to fend for yourself? Now, they didn't have Bibles. To, to put in their pockets and to carry with them. They didn't have iPhones with, 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 with scriptures and, and all these other tools that we have today. These were guys who this was all brand new to them. They've just come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Paul's been with them just a, a, a relatively short time. And now they're being taken away and all that's left are brand new believers. How does a church like that, how does that survive? Now, I know today's passage said that Paul remained with them a long time. That, that term, a long time, is, is, is relative. We can say, man, Rob's been at Crossroads a long time. 26 years. It's accurate. It's a long time. Some of you are saying, way too long. When Scripture says that Paul was with them a long time, it could have been 26 days. Which is a long time for Paul to stay anywhere. Or 2.6 months. The, 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 the phrase a long time is, is relative. Paul stayed some places 14 days and was forced to leave. And so even if he stayed there a month or, or two and a half months, it wasn't a long time. We know that Paul's whole trip, this whole first missionary journey took place in two years. And half of that was spent on the road walking from town to town. So when it says he stayed there a long time in, in Iconium, we, we, we think maybe just a month, two months at the most. So here you have these brand new believers who've just been introduced to this gospel of grace 
And, and the leader of that, that movement now is, is swept away and taken to the next town. Nobody's had time to mature. Nobody's had time to grow up. There's no one mature left behind. And very few of them would have known the Scriptures. The Jewish people would have known the Old Testament, but they would also still be seeing that through this, these eyes of this legalism. Who's going to lead the new church? How would that church survive the attacks that Satan is sure to launch against them? What about the persecution the Jews are, are bound and determined to deliver? This fledgling church in all these little towns that Paul's going to go to. Now listen, it's not just in Iconium, but in, in each town that Paul goes to, they lead people to Jesus, and then they're forced to move on, and these brand new groups of, of what will become churches are formed, but they don't have mature leadership yet. How in the world did Paul expect those churches to make it? It all comes back to Paul's strategy. It all comes back to the way the Holy Spirit had led Paul to build these churches and to, to establish them. Paul's strategy is critical for us to understand about a healthy church. And the reality, I want to say this right up front, the reality is we tend to do just the opposite of what Paul did. So let me walk you through how Paul built the church, how he established these churches. Paul had been told from the very beginning that he was going to suffer. He'd been let known by, by the Holy Spirit back there at, 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 on the road to Damascus that he was going to be a, a, um, the apostle to the Gentiles, that this would mean taking the gospel to places that it had never been. He wasn't going to live long enough to stay in each place 26 years. He's going to be moving around a lot. So Paul knew he wouldn't be there. And, and, and that means the people who had just heard the gospel, just responded to the gospel, are going to be left many times by themselves trying to survive. So here's his strategy. Look back with me again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We looked at it earlier, but chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, When I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you a testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. Paul did not want the people in those churches to be impressed with Paul to be impressed with Paul's speech, or to be impressed with Paul's great wisdom, his great teaching, his great life in Judaism. That wasn't, he, he didn't come laying out his resume, saying, here I am, I'm the greatest, latest, greatest preacher. Come follow me. He knew he wasn't their savior, and he knew that this was not Paul's church. He understood that. They didn't need to be impressed with what Paul was doing. They needed to be impressed with what Jesus had already done. So he says, I, I didn't come with this lofty speech, this, this, this great wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. His message always was centered on Jesus because long after Paul was gone, guess he was still going to be there? Jesus. Long after God moved him on, the Holy Spirit was still going to be around. He had to connect them quickly to Jesus and teach them dependence upon the Holy Spirit. He had to do this quick. I pretended to know nothing except Jesus. Why? Because when I'm gone, that's all you're going to need to know. He's the one that's going to get you through this. He's the one that's going to be your leader. He's the one that's going to show you where you go and, and how you do that. And, 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 and even as God worked a miracle through his crucifixion, God may work miracles through your persecution. So I focused on Jesus and him crucified. Jesus was the one they needed, not Paul. Only Jesus could save them, not Paul. Paul was dispensable, but Jesus was not. 
In verse 3, he says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Don't be impressed with me, he says, but be impressed with Jesus. Be committed to the freedom that Jesus offers you by his grace through faith. So it wasn't about my words of wisdom, he says, but it was in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. By the way, the same Spirit that comes to live in you when you become a believer. Paul says, I want you to know something. The Spirit that's working through me in a mighty way now lives in you. The Spirit of God who transformed me from this legalistic Pharisee to the, the, the preacher of grace can transform you. The same one that spoke to me in the desert of Arabia is the one that can speak to you right here in the midst of Iconium. Right here in Corinth, right here in Derby, right here in Lystra. He's the one. So Paul knew that his job, even though he couldn't be there long, was to connect them quickly to Christ, to connect them to the Holy Spirit, to show them how he depended on the Holy Spirit, how he listened to the Holy Spirit, how he obeyed the Holy Spirit, how he spoke what the Holy Spirit said, so that they could then imitate that and do it themselves. I didn't want your faith to rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I'm going to leave. And if your hope is built on me, then when I leave town, so does your hope. Listen, guys, churches today tend to do just the opposite. Now, I'm, I'm going to be as real and as transparent as I know how to be in these next few minutes. And I hope you don't think less of me because of that. But this is, this is real. Churches today look for the most gifted speaker, don't we? I want the guy that can light up the room. I want the guy that can tell the perfect story. That he's, he's a joke teller. He's a storyteller. He can, he can say it in ways that make me laugh and then he makes me cry. We want the gifted speaker. We want a charismatic personality. We want that guy that can hold our attention. That man, it seems like he just started when it's time to finish. That he's right on time, that he never runs long, he makes me laugh, he holds my hand, he visits in my home, he comes to the hospital. We look for the perfect pastor in our churches today. And here's the reality. There's plenty of us that would say, I'm it. I'm it. You see, it's not just the church that wants the perfect pastor. It's the pastor that wants to be the perfect pastor. But if we're not connecting people to Jesus and teaching them to depend upon him, then we have to run to the hospital every time somebody has a hiccup. We have to run to your house every time something gets a little nerve-wracking. We, we have to be perfect. We have to be this. We have to pretend that we've got it all together when we as pastors know that we don't. Because that's what they expect from me. Paul never fell into that trap. Because of that, his churches could be healthy. We want the perfect pastor so we can have the perfect church. But that was not Paul's strategy. And, and that's a strategy for failure today. So many times in churches, Jesus is barely factored into the equation. The Holy Spirit seldom even invited to come. 
After all, we don't need those guys because we've got the perfect leader, the perfect pastor, the perfect elders, the perfect this, the perfect that, the perfect program. We got it figured out. We know how to draw a crowd. We know what they want to hear. We know what they want to, to, to experience. And so we, we see churches today, honestly. And I think that if our church could have afforded it, I probably would have been one of these guys to do it. That have the light shows and the, the great music and the great bands and the great this and the great that. And, and we do everything but invite Jesus in. And we build people and their faith upon these gimmicks that when those get old, we've got to have another one that can top that one. Paul says, don't, don't fall into that trap. The problem is this. Pastors come, and pastors go. Pastors rise, and pastors fall. Pastors lead, and then pastors leave. Pastors get fired up, and then they flame out. Pastors live, and pastors die. Pastors get tired, and then they retire. (laughs) If we build this church upon me, or upon our deacons, or our elders, or our small group leaders, anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ. We're setting ourselves up for failure. We really are. Paul knew that it was not his job to build that church upon him. Because if a ministry is personality-driven, or pastor-centered, or self-absorbed, give me what I want, entertain me, keep me happy, that church will never accomplish the Great Commission. It will fail. It will either close, or worse, it will survive and be ineffective. So Paul refused to make the church about him. He knew that pastors can't grow a church, that only God can grow the church. Remember the argument they had in Corinth about who was greater, Paul or Apollos? Two, Two great guys, Paul who planted the church and Apollos who came and pastored the church. And they're arguing about which is the greatest. And Paul writes to them and says in in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They're just servants through whom you believed as the Lord has assigned each of us our task. I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul says, listen, that's a stupid argument. Who's the greatest? The greatest is God. And if you're building your church on any other foundation than Jesus Christ, you're, you're, you're doomed to come crashing down. The, the, the other secret of this early church is that they were filled with and dependent upon the Holy Spirit. They had tasted God's grace. They knew it was undeserved, and yet it was so abundant. And these guys were committed to never turning back to that slavery, never turning back to, to that legalism. They'd been set free, and they didn't want to go back. Now, these churches weren't perfect. And Paul, the letters that Paul writes in the New Testament are letters to correct what's going wrong in these churches. 
there was a lot of immaturity. There was a lot of bad decisions. There were some, some things that, that weren't being done right and some things that should have been done that weren't getting done. And Paul had to write letters and correct those things. And, and, and I mean, the first letter that Paul's going to write is to the, the church of Galatia, which are the churches that we're looking at right now. And he's going to write to them and say, I'm, I'm astonished at how fast you've walked away from God. I left you there under the care of God, and, and you've left grace behind, and you're going back to legalism. Why? Because they were immature. The only people there that knew the Bible were these Jewish legalists, and they were sucking them back into legalism. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not the gospel we preached. They weren't perfect. They needed to be corrected. They needed to be rechanneled and redirected. But, 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 but Paul was a guy that, that said, look, I'm leaving you in charge of the Holy Spirit, in, in, in the grip of God's grace. Let the Holy Spirit fill you. Let Him empower you. Let Him lead you and protect you. Lean on Him, not on me or anyone else. Paul preached Jesus and demonstrated uh, the need for dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And I fear that churches today, including our own, fall short in that area. Guys, listen, this new building we're going to start this week, it's, it's, it's going to be an awesome tool. It will not reach one person for Jesus Christ. Only God can do that through us. Buildings don't fix things. Buildings need to be fixed. They're great tools, they're great instruments, but they are not the, the end all. That's not the thing that's going to fill up this church. The thing that's going to fill up this church is for you and me to be filled with God's Spirit and to take the gospel everywhere we go. That's what fills up a church. Not a great speaker. People will, listen, it's not about us. It's about what God does in us and through us. And Paul understood that. I don't know if we're convinced enough of our need for the Holy Spirit. I don't know that we understand how much we need Him to get us through. Well, I've got a commentary that tells me everything I need to know. I got the internet. I got blue letter Bible. I, I've got all these things that, 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 that I've got. And, and so, why need the Holy Spirit? We trust our own giftedness instead of the Holy Spirit. We ask questions like, well, what do I want out of a church? Instead of, what does God want to do with me through this church? Jesus is sometimes passed over for something more palatable. Jesus, his words are tough. Come follow me. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. First will be last. The last will be first. Jesus' words are tough. Love your enemies. We prefer sermons about our felt needs instead of our real needs. Sometimes we'd rather focus on our kingdom than on God's kingdom. Sometimes we choose to live for ourselves instead of living for him. And many times we like for people to connect with us rather than connecting with Christ. As I wrote this this morning, I thought, man, I, I don't know if I can say this or not, but I, I think I need to. I'm ashamed and yet not too proud to admit that I'm not even sure that I know what it feels like to be totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit at least not for long stretches of times. There's times in my life where I've definitely been 
totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit. I'm in a bind and I can't get myself out of it. I'm in a, I'm in a situation where if God doesn't show up, I'm in trouble. But the reality is that's every day. Every day. I'm ashamed to admit that, that I'm not sure I even know what it's like to be fully dependent upon him, to be fully focused upon Jesus like I'm saying we need to be this morning. I get sidetracked. I get self-sufficient. I get selfish. I tend to trust my own hard work more than I do the work of the Holy Spirit. I tend to think that the difference between somebody being saved and going to hell is what I'm going to say instead of what the Holy Spirit wants to say. Sometimes I let myself believe the success of this church rests on me and on my shoulders when the Bible says something completely different. In Paul's day, these new believers, they were suffering for their faith. And it was that persecution against them that drove them to depend upon the Holy Spirit like nobody's business. Our prosperity tends to lull us to sleep. It tricks us into thinking that we can be self-sufficient and that's good enough. Our prosperity convinces us that we've got this, that we can do this. Just go to the right conference and learn the right new trick and that's going to grow your church. But if we ignore Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we will do so to our own demise. If we build our church around personalities, we will do so to our own demise. Jesus is the only foundation that the church can be built upon that will survive. The only one worthwhile, the only one worth our time and our attention. The Holy Spirit has to empower each of us if we are going to accomplish God's purpose. Listen, if you leave here today thinking you can do God's work in your own strength, you will be of no value whatsoever to the kingdom of God. People might be impressed with you. They might think you're a great person or a hard worker. But ultimately, eternally, you're not going to make any difference whatsoever. So what we see in Paul's story again and again and again, we'll see this lived out, is that Paul will enter a town. He will preach the gospel. The gospel will divide. There will persecution will arise. Believers will be strengthened. And they'll have to depend upon the Holy Spirit for their survival. The Church of America has been through such a time of ease and comfort and blessing and prosperity that we've grown complacent. We've got a good place to meet. We've got air conditioning and heat. Sometimes we get those backwards, but we've got air conditioning and heat. Lights and cameras and all kinds of technology. And if we just make it comfortable, make it fun, people will come. There's not much comfort on the pages of the book of Acts. <laughs> There's not much fun in the persecution that the church was going through. But in the midst of their discomfort and in the midst of their persecution, they grew like crazy because they clinged to God they built upon Jesus and they were empowered by the Holy Spirit so let me close by asking you this what are you building your life upon 
What, what does your faith rest upon? If you're building your faith upon me, I'm going to let you down. If you get close enough, you'll see my warts and you'll see my shortcomings. And your faith will fall apart. But if you build your faith on Jesus Christ, you'll never be disappointed. You'll never be left wanting. He will satisfy you, he will lead you, he will empower you, and he will use you in ways that you haven't even ever dreamed he could. How do these fledgling churches survive? They were built upon Jesus and his word. They were empowered by his spirit. And not only did they survive, but they changed their world. Where, what are you building your life upon? And where are you looking for the power that you need to do the impossible? Maybe like me, you need to stop and evaluate and repent. And ask the Lord to realign your heart and make you more focused upon him and less focused upon yourself. More dependent upon him and less dependent upon your own abilities. Because if we're ever going to display God's power to a lost and dying world, then guys, we've got to share Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what fills up churches. That's what changes lives. And that's what makes a difference for all of eternity. Nothing else will work. And to be honest, nothing else matters. So let's pray together this morning. And I pray that as we conclude our time together, that you'll really search your heart. And ask that question, what am I building my faith upon? If I left this building today and had a moral crisis and was forced to leave this church, if I pull out into the highway and get sideswiped and killed, was your faith in me? Was your faith in someone else other than Jesus? It's dangerous. It's deadly. So what's your faith in this morning? Let's pray.